Hello, and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 32 of the podcast, titled The Chinese Buffet, written by myself. Thank you all for listening. There's going to be a full moon in Los Angeles tonight, and Mr. Wilkes is preparing for a busy evening. John Wilkes follows the lunar cycle religiously. He likes to keep tabs on those kinds of things. He also studies astrology, tarot cards, and certain occultic traditions that are better left unnamed. This study is all done in the name of prognostication, not to know his personal future, like if he'll become rich and famous, but to predict one singular thing, the severity of the night's dinner rush. Based on the full moon and the hanged man card he pulled this afternoon, tonight's dinner rush is fixin' to be a real killer. Wilkes, the owner and manager of Burbank's most trafficked Chinese buffet, paces behind the restaurant's front desk, cracking his knuckles. It's 4.30 p.m. and quiet. The maroon carpeting and wood-paneled walls of the buffet swallow sound like a recording studio. But Wilkes knows that in a couple hours this silence will be replaced by an ungodly roar a constant dumb murmur of buffet patrons scrambling for chow mein and General So's chicken. The mere thought of this makes his hair stand on end. This Chinese buffet, which originally began operation on a warm July day in 1982, has never actually been owned or operated by someone of Chinese descent. From 82 to 95, it was owned by an Italian couple from Peoria, Illinois, but they never really figured out how to turn a profit and wound up throwing in the towel after 13 long years. Reopening its doors in the fall of 96 was a Hispanic family from Boyle Heights. They ran the place like the damn Navy, keeping everything spick and span and serving Mexican staples alongside the Chinese delicacies. They were very successful. By the spring of 2013, they sold the place for a handsome profit to some kind of corporation, which owned like 200 other similar-styled restaurants nationwide. This faceless corporation ran the place into the ground, however. They hired a team of slack-jawed, know-nothing teenagers to run the place, and by the time the pandemic came knocking, the restaurant was all but belly up. The corporation closed the buffet but held on to the property, unable to sell it until Mr. Wilkes entered the picture in the fall of 2021. A middle-aged, concerningly skinny man from Marfa, Texas, Wilkes bought the buffet at a time when any big financial move was made doubly risky on account of a global virus that crippled the world economy. At the time, buying property, especially in Southern California, was cost-prohibitive. Houses were going for like 50% more than they were even one year previous. Prices rose and the dollar's value fell. I guess they call that inflation. Go figure. It was a seller's market to be sure. Wilkes, still reeling from a string of business losses that had carried him from Jacksonville, Florida, to Plano, Texas, to Las Cruces, New Mexico, saw something in this little Chinese buffet. What it was, exactly, no one can be sure. Scrounging up all the cash he could muster, He bought the buffet, sight unseen, and headed west, eager to roll the dice in the sunny San Fernando Valley. Unfortunately, food service, especially the high-octane world of all-you-can-eat food service, wouldn't exactly agree with him. He's a very anxious kind of guy. But Wilkes couldn't quit. He had no choice but to stick it out. Everything he has is tied up in this buffet. Every single penny. To close its doors would mean nothing less than complete and utter ruin. From behind his front desk, well, it's more of a rostrum, or a podium, really. Mr. Wilkes stares out the glass doors of his restaurant. Heat sizzles and glassy waves on the asphalt of the parking lot. A big blacktop, probably one acre squared. Only like half a dozen cars sit in the lot right now, and they're not here for the buffet, thank the Lord. Wilkes's buffet is squished in the middle of a strip mall, flanked on one side by a dirty pawn shop, and on the other by, and I kid you not, a crematorium a dreary place that puffs white fumes of the deceased through a chimney in the back of the mall. The fumes don't smell or anything. In fact, they're odorless, colorless, benign wisps of vapor. But they still remind Wilkes of dead things, or of Auschwitz. It gives him the creeps. Wilkes checks his watch. It's 4.36 p.m. The doors open at 5. He's got 26 minutes before all hell breaks loose. Some clattering comes from the kitchen. Turning over his shoulder, Wilkes sees shadows moving past the windows in the kitchen's double doors. The kitchen staff's back there, revving up for the night. In truth, Wilkes doesn't know his kitchen crew all too well. He keeps in contact with them by way of the head chef, Mr. Lee Oswald, no relation to the communist sympathizing assassin. Oswald, a tight-lipped hunchback with arms like a gorilla's, acts as mouthpiece and messenger for the kitchen team, doesn't let Wilkes really interact with them. Wilkes is okay with this. 
They're a frightening bunch, the kitchen staff. Covered in tattoos and piercings and all with very vague pasts, they kind of give Wilkes the spooks. From the few glimpses he's gotten of the kitchen during operating hours, he knows that it's basically ran like the boiler room of a great steamboat. Hot vapor billows, beleaguered men wear very little clothing and hunch over steel machinery and are sweaty, there's the smell of fire and charred meat, and everyone is shouting angrily. There's also sort of this general vibe that all things are throbbing, the men and the stoves and the cutting knives, in rhythm. But the food always makes it out and into the stainless steel trays on time, so Mr. Wilkes has nothing to really complain about as far as the kitchen is concerned. How are we looking today? A spiky voice asks. Wilkes turns around to find his hostess, Squeaky Frome, no relation to the Charles Manson canoodler, approaching the podium. She's a serious force to be reckoned with, Miss Frome. Standing at about four foot nine and with breasts the size of genetically modified watermelons, she's basically a big sphere of fleshy intensity. She smiles at Mr. Wilkes, her buck teeth hanging over her bottom lip like big bricks of dentine gum. I have a feeling it's going to be a long one tonight, Wilkes says, wringing his hands. Miss Frome frowns, shakes her head. Well, I'll make sure we're ready. Wilkes nods. He knows she will. Being that there are no waiters or servers in this self-service buffet, the chain of command on the restaurant floor is pretty simple. Miss Frome is God, and everyone else is her little peon. She instructs the busboys and girls like an Old Testament deity or a Russian ballet choreographer. Everything must be done with precision and the utmost efficacy. Anything less is a sin. Wilkes has been, on a number of occasions, Forced to reprimand Miss Frome on how she conducts herself with her subordinates. She's kind of a sociopath. Like an SS officer, she actively rewards psychopathic behavior in her underlings, while punishing any behavior that could be misconstrued as weakness, i.e. kindness, humility, and generosity. Meaning the buffet floor is run by a group of highly effective but semi-sadistic high schoolers who scrub tables, mop floors, and procure beverages with the intense, straight-faced determination of a Gestapo death squad, but without any of the more hospitable traits one expects to find in a restaurant staff. Wilkes is pleased by their efficacy, but also thinks they could lighten up a bit, for the sake of the buffet's atmosphere, at least. Like, if someone asks for a Coke, it can be served in due time, with a smile and a nod. You don't have to sprint to the fountain machine and lunge back to the table, Coke in hand, like a track runner carrying a baton and Wilkes wishes they would say normal things to the patrons like, yeah, absolutely, and we can make that work, not your request will be satisfied sufficiently, or I will fulfill your desire to the fullest extent of my capabilities. I pulled a hangman card today, Wilkes mumbles to Frome. A hangman card and tonight's a full moon. It's going to be a hell of a night. Miss Frome rolls her jawbreaker eyes. Back in my day, she says, wrapping her arms beneath the shelf of her breasts, Back in my day, that stuff was called black magic. Satanic stuff. Witchcraft. I don't know why you put any faith in it. Mr. Wilkes nods. Only because it seems to be right more than half the time. Well, keep that bad juju away from me, Miss Frome says, moving beside Mr. Wilkes behind the front desk. I'm going to take the helm now, if you don't mind. Wilkes nods. Please, I'll be in my office if you need anything. Miss Frome nods but isn't listening. She's poring over the buffet's seating charts, clumsy, photocopied illustrations of the buffet floor from a bird's-eye view. The tables are all drawn and numbered with black felt-tip pen, Wilkes's work, and Miss Frome has every inch of these drawings memorized. She knows the orientation of the tables upside down and sideways, can see the buffet floor in her mind's eye, can shift the tables around in her head like Tom Cruise with that computer and minority report. Wilkes knows he's leaving the buffet floor in good hands. On his way back to his office, Wilkes skirts around the entrance to the kitchen and peeks inside its windows. It's hard to make out what's going on in there. It's dimly lit and the windows are fogged up with steam, but he can see shadows dancing and hobbling around. Every so often a jet of flame plumes like a solar flare and then dies back again, illuminating the nasty kitchen landscape like lightning in a nighttime storm. In these brief moments of illumination, Wilkes sees that, like demons in a medieval depiction of hell, his kitchen staff is bent over large cauldrons of boiling, frothing, indescribable muck. Some of his cooks see him in the window and smile in feverish delight, their faces made inhuman by tattoos and piercings and roiling clouds of steam. Wilkes gets the willies and continues on to his office. They seem to be getting the job done in there. They don't need his help. Now, Wilkes' office is more or less a makeshift cubicle in the back corner of the buffet floor. 
the walls of which are built out of that modular, carpeted material you often find in schools and churches, the beige, scratchy stuff. There's no ceiling or door. Near the entrance to the office, a laminated piece of cardstock is stapled to the wall. It reads, Mr. Wilkes, owner and operator. Wilkes has made this corner of the buffet his own. Paintings hang on the walls, phony plants loom along the edges of the room, and his desk is impressive and elegant, like something a real CEO might have. But being that there isn't a ceiling or a door to this little back room, all the unpleasant sounds of the buffet can stream directly into his nook, destroying any illusions of privacy or separation. Also, since it's butted up against the back wall, an exterior wall which isn't very robust and made of just like sheetrock and stucco, Wilkes hears all of the sounds that come from the back alley. And, like, for some odd reason, a lot of sounds come from back there. Like, there's perpetual maintenance going on. Like, every day, Wilkes hears guys back there shouting and banging around and heaving what seem to be impossibly heavy things and then dropping those things so that the very foundations of the buffet seem to quiver. On a couple occasions, Wilkes has peeked out the back door to get a look at what was going on and has seen like three guys in orange roadwork vests sort of hunched over piping that runs along the backside of the buffet, looking very out of place and unequipped to repair or construct anything. They had no real tools, except for like the generalized tools you'd find in a toddler's toy tool chest, screwdrivers and hammers and big orange wrenches, as if they were some sitcom mechanics who just went around slapping monkey wrenches against metallic surfaces without the intention or know-how to really fix anything. Whatever it is they actually do, they create one hell of a racket while doing it. Wilkes also thinks, though he can't be sure, that he's heard gunshots coming from back there, but he chalks this up as paranoid nonsense. Wilkes falls into his rolly chair behind his desk and checks his watch. It's 4.47. He's got less than 15 minutes now. Reaching to one of the lower drawers of his desk, he pulls out not a bottle of scotch but a small wooden barrel, something like a wine barrel but miniaturized, and sets it on his desk. Popping off the top, Wilkes spills the barrel's contents across his desktop carefully, like a chef seasoning some meat. The contents clatter against the wood with a hollow sound like plastic pieces of a Lego set. They're weird-looking things, skinny slivers of stuff about the size and shape of porcupine quills but curved slightly like snake fangs and colored in the faded alabaster of seashells. They also have some striation-like texturing. They're bones. They are the bones of fowl of the air. Wilkes shuffles the bones like a blackjack dealer, flipping them around, twirling them, tossing them into curious patterns. Once they're organized in a geometric pattern that seems to satisfy him, he pulls a small notebook from his breast pocket and jots something down. He flips the notebook closed and frowns. The portents of the chicken bones are not at all what he'd hoped for. All things still point towards tonight being a real circus. Wilkes gathers up the bones like crumbs from a sandwich and scoops them back into the little barrel. He checks his watch again. It's 4.53. His heart sinks. Sir! Miss Fromm's voice squeaks from just beyond the partition's walls. She's standing around the corner of the office's entrance so as to create a certain separation between her and her boss. Since there's no door to his office, Wilkes has asked that all his employees observe this courtesy, addressing him first from around the corner. Otherwise, it's just kind of like they're barging right into his space. Yeah, Wilkes says, looking up and to the left where Miss Frome is probably standing on the other side of the partition. Is there a problem? Um, no, sir. No problem. Frome's voice says, Uh, there, there are some men here to see you. Hmm? Yeah, should I send them in? Wilkes grits his teeth. Uh, sure, please, yes, uh, send, send them in. Some whispering and shuffling beyond the partition walls. Then, almost out of nowhere, two men appear in the entrance to Wilkes's office. One of the men is tall and gaunt and wears a chin-strap beard. The other is shorter and handsome and presents a fine, straight smile. They both wear ill-fitting suits with name badges. Uh, he hello, sirs, Wilkes says, standing. How can I help you today? We're just about to open our doors. May we come in? The shorter man asks. Oh, oh yes, uh, please, Wilkes says. Come, come. The men take two steps inside the office. My name is Mr. Lincoln, the taller of the two men says. Aberforth Lincoln, but you can just call me Abe. Oh, pleased to meet you, Abe. I'm Mr. Wilkes. Oh, we know who you are, the shorter one says, a little aggressively. We're here on assignment from the bigwigs uptown. Do you know who I mean when I say the bigwigs uptown? Wilkes shakes his head, thinks of the hanged man card and the full moon and the clock that's about to strike 5 p.m. Uh, no, I, 
I, I can't say I, I do know what you mean. We're with the health department, Abe says, tapping his plastic name badge. We're here today to perform a surprise inspection. Surprise, shouts the littler guy, arms akimbo. Wilkes smiles, nods as if the surprise were actually pleasant. Oh, this, uh, this, Wilkes mumbles. Some sweat begins to shine on the top of his forehead. His cheeks flush and speckle like raspberries. Well, uh, this is definitely a, a surprise. The tall man senses Mr. Wilkes's terror, smiles, and says, Oh, there's nothing to be worried about, sir. I'm sure everything here is above board, right? Wilkes manages a smile. Oh, uh, of course. Of course, says the littler man. My name is Kennedy, by the way, Jerry Kennedy. Kennedy reaches out to take Wilkes's hand. They shake. A p- pleasure, Wilkes mutters. So how will your uh, inspection be conducted, if you don't mind my asking? Our doors open in. Wilkes checks his watch. It's 5 p.m. sharp. Uh, right now, actually. We have a very, very busy dinner rush. Wilkes nearly faints when he says this last. His eyes flutter and his head lists. Oh, Lincoln says. We'll stay out of your way. You won't even notice us. Well, what, what do you need from me? Wilkes asks, pulling a silk handkerchief from his breast pocket and dabbing his forehead like an antebellum aristocrat. Nothing, Kennedy says in a kind of foreboding manner, as if in actuality they would need a lot of things, but that fact would be kept secret until later. We need exactly zero from you, sir. It's our job to see how this place is run as is. Just attend to your restaurant. Leave the rest to us. Wilkes nods. The hair on the sides of his head is glistening with sweat now. Little spikes of gelled hair peel away from his skull and poke out like the arms of an aloe vera plant, each with a marble of sweat dangling from its vertex. Wilkes slides his hands into his pants pockets, feeling for his good luck charms, the molars of an old voodoo queen he picked up on his last trip to New Orleans. He takes biannual treks to occultist conventions down there. Well... Lincoln says in his nasally voice, We better get to it. We'll call on you at the end of our inspection to go over some things. Oh, sure, sure, Wilkes says, nodding. Please, do what you need to. Bowing their heads, smiling, and turning on their heels in unison like an old comedy duo, the two health inspectors leave the office. Wilkes waits a few moments, paces the very short length of his office, and then calls for Miss Frome. He gets no answer. He calls again. Nothing. He peeks around the corner of his cubicle and looks out at the buffet floor. Patrons are already streaming inside. A couple tables are filled, and Miss Frome is manning the front desk, directing patrons to tables like a coked-up orchestra conductor, waving her arms in tight, emotionally charged movements. Wilkes sees Mr. Lincoln sort of lingering around the buffet trays, notebook in hand, his long neck bent so his chin nearly touches his chest, watching patrons as they fill their plates. His face is lit up devilishly by the red glow of the heating lamps, and every so often he cocks his head, knits his brow, and scribbles something hurriedly on his notebook. Wilkes doesn't like this. Across the buffet, Mr. Kennedy is having a little talk with Oswald in front of the kitchen. Wilkes can't hear what the men are saying, but based on Oswald's puckered face and wild gesticulations, big windmilling motions with some gorilla-like chest pounding, he knows it can't be good. Kennedy, taken aback, frowns, makes a clutching-at-his-pearls-type motion, and turns, looking directly at Wilkes. He raises a finger towards Wilkes in a slow, children-of-the-corn kind of way, and says something very seriously. Oswald frowns, relents, and lets Mr. Kennedy step inside his kitchen. The two men disappear into a cloud of steam, almost like firemen stepping inside a burning building. Even with all of the bad omens Wilkes has read today, he never thought things were leading to this, a health inspection. Maybe something like this could happen on a lunar eclipse or a summer solstice, but on a run-of-the-mill full moon? Damn, he would have never guessed. See, the truth of the matter is this. The Chinese buffet is kind of in disarray. The food is good and the buffet floor is kept tidy, but any sustained inspection of the restaurant would reveal a host of disturbing truths about the institution. Like, for example, all along the baseboards of the restaurant a kind of granular mold is starting to grow. It began as something entirely unnoticeable, like dust under a refrigerator. But as time went on, the mold started to expand, running along the baseboards like shiny black veins of a coal mine. The nature of the mold was never really looked into, its variant or cause never discovered. Not even militant Miss Frome cared to have the stuff dealt with. She was always too busy providing for patrons. 
So the mold grew and grew, and now, if you let your eyes wander to the lower quadrant of the restaurant's walls, you'll find long, jagged fingers of mold sprouting off the baseboards like enormous caterpillars, as shiny and prickly as pipe cleaners. Luckily, the mold produces no real smell, and, as of now, hasn't gotten anyone sick or into anyone's food. Once the mold's watermark rises above the level of the tabletops, the staff will probably be motivated to make some kind of change. But as of now, it hasn't been a problem. This mold thing, though, is really just like one minor offense in a laundry list of other, possibly more hazardous offenses. For instance, in the kitchen, there's like a bunch of electrical wiring just dangling from the ceiling for some reason. Like, all of the ceiling tiles have been removed, so there's just this skeletal scaffolding stuff and a bunch of exposed piping and electrical shit that's sagging far too low for comfort, and Wilkes thinks that one day some of the wiring is going to slip and fall into some boiling pot which will shoot out sparks like a Tesla coil and electrocute half of his kitchen staff. That wouldn't be good. Or, like, how about the fact that there isn't really any proper drainage system surrounding the strip mall, sewer, or otherwise? So on the few rainy days Burbank gets, rainwater somehow seeps under the buffet's carpeting and makes the floor all lumpy and loose as if it's one big waterbed. It takes weeks for the flooring to solidify again, and the smell is kind of unbearable, like a McDonald's play place on a hot day. Or, or, and this is a good one, how about the fact that some critters have snuck inside the false cabinetry that the buffet trays sit on, probably because they like the radiant heat that comes off the heating lamps, and since no one really wants to tear open the cabinetry, the critters have been allowed to breed and multiply to the point where if you're quiet, you can hear dozens of little animals squeaking and scratching from within the cabinetry. It sounds vaguely like a giant carbonated soda has been hidden beneath the cabinets and is bubbling and fizzing all the time. Fun stuff. So, needless to say, if these health inspectors do their job at even 50% capacity, the buffet and all of Wilkes's money, time, and aspirations will go swirling down the drain. Wilkes begins to shake, goes to the filing cabinet in his office. Out of the top drawer, he pulls a small satchel, a leather bag, something like a medieval tax collector would keep his gold doubloons in, and, using his thumb and forefinger, slips out a small mound of powder. He puts the powder, which is roughly the texture of cocaine except it's a deep orange color, on the tip of his long reptilian tongue and swallows it back down. He shivers, puckers his lips, and then lets out a little yelp. We'll, we'll figure this out, he whispers, his eyes euphorically rolling to the back of his head. We'll, we'll figure this out. The dinner rush wasn't as bad as expected. The first couple hours were filled with the usual suspects. Families celebrating special occasions, old folks looking for an early meal, and the occasional couple out on a pretty piss-poor date. These buffet-goers are typically easy to satiate, especially the families out on a birthday celebration or end-of-baseball-season congratulatory meal. These families think, since they never really go to buffets, that they'll be more capable of scarfing down just ridiculous amounts of food because their bodies have been deprived of such gluttony for years. Like starved wolves, they feel they can start eating and never stop. Sadly, though, their stomachs aren't used to that level of relentless consumption, and they typically throw in the towel after like two meager plates of fried rice and broccoli beef. The guys Wilkes typically worries about are the buffet regulars, the guys who come in a little bit later and who wear stringy tank tops and short shorts, the bodybuilders. There's this bodybuilding gym like two blocks down the road from the Chinese buffet, a real hole in the wall that serves only the most dedicated meatheads. It's the kind of gym you steer clear of if you aren't 270 pounds of muscle and eager to compete in the next Mr. Olympia. You can hear weights being bonked and the unique, half-erotic sound of men moaning under intense pressure from like a block away. Anyway, the entire membership of this gym goes to Wilkes' buffet almost daily, and tonight was no exception. They came strolling in, the bodybuilders, around 8 p.m., stepping through the glass double doors in single file and in rhythm like a mutated version of the Rockettes, rocking from one foot to the other sort of like plasticine action figures unable to really articulate their joints. The head of the bodybuilder troupe, a man with garden hose-like veins in his biceps, asked Miss Frome for their usual table. She took them straight there. Just as on all the other nights, these bodybuilders made their rounds, piling their plates high with protein and carbs. Mr. Lincoln watched them from the shadows, marking his notebook. Wilkes stood just outside his office, biting his nails. The bodybuilders ate and left without real incident, to Wilkes's great relief. But after the bodybuilders, there came the army of stoners, potheads anywhere from the ages of 17 to 40 who, 
while perhaps more sedated than the roided-up weightlifters, tend to be much less organized. They wandered in the buffet around 9 p.m., an hour or so before closing, meandering through the lobby with the weird, unintentional motion of dead leaves bobbing down a river. Miss Frome and her team of high-intensity busboys ushered the dope smokers to their tables and, like zombies in a George A. Romero film, the stoners terrorized the buffet's food offerings in a slow, methodical way, gobbling up everything in sight. By the time the stoners had their fill, the buffet trays were all but emptied. This was fine by Wilkes, though, as the buffet's closure coincided with the stoners' departure. No more patrons to feed tonight. Now, it's just after 10 p.m., the full moon is out, and the dinner shift is over. Wilkes has come out of his office hideout and is speaking with Miss Frome at the front desk. They like to have these little debriefing sessions at the end of each shift. He seems to have all but forgotten about the ongoing health inspection. Excuse me? A nasally voice asks from behind Wilkes. Wilkes, stopping his conversation with Frome, turns around, gasps in surprise, chokes, coughs, and then nods in recognition. Oh, oh, hello, Mr. Lincoln. I almost forgot about the inspection altogether. I'm so sorry if I kept you waiting. Lincoln smiles. Not at all, Mr. Wilkes, not at all. Perhaps we could go over some things in your office. Mr. Kennedy and I have a few things to talk with you about. Wilkes smiles, trying to mask his newfound horror. Oh, y yes, we can do that. Is, is everything all right? Lincoln furrows his black, cactus-needle brows. It'd be best if we discuss this in your office, Mr. Wilkes. Wilkes nods. Oh, sh sh sure, of, of course, after you. Wilkes motions for Lincoln to move on ahead of him. Mr. Kennedy is already in Wilkes's office when he and Lincoln arrive. He sits in one of the cushioned folding chairs opposite Wilkes's desk, his clipboard bouncing on his knees. Oswald is there, too, standing beside Kennedy and looking guilty, like a child waiting to speak with the school principal, his head hung, his hands clasped behind his back. Mr. Wilkes, Kennedy says, hopping to his feet. I took the liberty of bringing Mr. Oswald in for this. I hope you don't mind. Wilkes shimmies behind his desk and sits down. Uh, no, n not at all, not at all, please. Mr. Lincoln, sit. Mr. Lincoln sits down beside his associate. Uh, now, now then, what... What do we need to go over? Is, is there anything wrong? The health inspectors look at each other out of the corner of their eyes in a way that feels almost choreographed, as if it's a bit from a musical or something. Mr. Kennedy flips through the papers on his clipboard and clears his throat. Well, Mr. Wilkes, unfortunately there is something wrong. There are quite a few things wrong, actually. Lincoln puts his hand on Kennedy's knee, signaling that he'll take the reins. Look, Mr. Wilkes, it's come to our attention that... If I can speak openly, your restaurant is not fit for service, I'm afraid. Wilkes swallows, his bird beak of an Adam's apple sliding up and down his throat. He looks up at Oswald, who appears to be just as terrified. His temples shine with sweat. Wha oh, 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 why, why, why have you come to, to that conclusion? Wilkes asks, gripping his chair's armrests. We run a, a, good, a good restaurant here, don't we, Oswald? Uh, Oswald, our, our customers leave satisfied. The customer's satisfaction is of little importance, Lincoln says, bringing on a gruff persona. Why, Mr. Wilkes says, it's, it's of primary importance. What could be more important than their satisfaction? Their health, Mr. Wilkes, Kennedy says, leaning forward. And unfortunately, you've jeopardized it, sir. Why, I myself found nearly 110 health code violations in the kitchen alone. Uh. A hundred and, and what? Wilkes mumbles, his eyes dilated like an animated squirrel's. One hundred and ten, Lincoln affirms sternly. That's more than we have ever encountered anywhere in this fine valley of ours. Well, surely there's, there's been some kind of a, a, a mistake here. Lincoln raises his hand, his flat palm facing out towards Wilkes. I assure you, there's been no mistake. Well... Well, um, is, th is there a way to, to remediate these problems? Yes, Mr. Wilkes, there is, Lincoln says. And, and what, what would that be? Closing this establishment at once. What, what do you mean by closing? Wilkes asks, tapping his fingertips on his desk. He feels an unholy pressure rising in his chest, like a meatball gilded in shards of chain link is caught in his esophagus. Lincoln frowns. 
I mean that you cannot operate as a restaurant until every infraction we have listed has been rectified. Might we go over what some of those infractions are? Wilkes asks. Yes, actually, Kennedy says, interjecting. In fact, why don't we do a little tour of the restaurant, yes? uh, uh, Fine, Wilkes says, his voice trembling. Please, after you. The tour begins at the front desk. Miss Frome, Wilkes, and Oswald stand in the foyer as Lincoln and Kennedy silently compare notes, passing their clipboards back and forth and flipping through the pages. Every so often they nod seriously and point things out to the other, tapping their fingers agitatedly against the clipboards. Then, like teachers making a headcount before a field trip, the health inspectors eye Wilkes and his lieutenants and invite them to follow them through the restaurant. Why don't we begin here? Lincoln asks, moving towards the counters where the buffet trays reside. This is a rather vital part of the buffet, is it not? Wilkes nods. Uh, Yes, yes, sir. Lincoln nods and extends his arms, corralling the buffet operators towards one end of the buffet counters. Does anything look off to you, Mr. Wilkes? Lincoln asks, tapping his bearded chin. Uh, uh, no, sir, I I can't say that anything does, but I'm sure something must be off if, um, otherwise you, you wouldn't have asked that question. Lincoln extends a crotchety finger towards the heating lamps in a prophetic way, as if he were pointing out a storm on the horizon. These heating lamps, Mr. Wilkes, are very much out of code, sir. These exact models have been recalled, I believe, due to spontaneous combustion and, what is much more sinister, the leakage of vapors that are known in the state of California to be carcinogenic. Imagine those vapors, sir. Imagine them spilling out of these lamps and onto the food below. Imagine the thousands of lives you might have put in harm's way. All of these people ingesting and digesting these toxic particles. These lamps, sir, need to be replaced. Wilkes licks his lips in angst. From why don't you write this stuff down, please? Frome nods, rummages through the various pockets in her cargo pants, and retrieves a small notepad. But I'm afraid these heating lamps are really just the tip of the iceberg, Mr. Wilkes, Lincoln says, shaking his head in disbelief. Come and look at this. Lincoln crooks his index finger and hooks the air in the direction he'd like Wilkes to go. Wilkes follows Lincoln to the other end of the counters where Lincoln stops and looks at the ground before his feet. He points. What is it, sir? Wilkes asks. Look closely, Lincoln says in a seriously condescending tone. Come on, use your eyes. I, I don't see anything. Lincoln, before anyone can really say anything, spits a twirling string of saliva onto the floor. The brown carpet surrounding the saliva seems to quiver, shake, and then, like the parting of the Red Sea or the unzipping of a jacket, it comes apart like along the sodden seam where the saliva landed revealing the original maroon carpeting beneath. Insects, something like cockroaches but smaller and perhaps denser, have clustered around the base of the buffet counters in a mob so thick that their wiggling thoraxes have combined to look like brown shag carpeting. Wilkes earnestly had no clue that there was such an infestation. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's a lot of bugs, Wilkes says. Yes, I'll say, Mr. Wilkes, Lincoln grumbles. You have an infestation that rivals any I have ever seen. This could take some serious work to get rid of. They're inside the flooring, the walls, everywhere. Excuse me, Mr. Kennedy calls from across the counters. Could we take this into the kitchen? There are a few pressing things I'd like to go over immediately. Well, please, Lincoln says. Everyone, follow Mr. Kennedy to the kitchen. As they move towards the kitchen, Wilkes takes up the rear and taps Miss Frome on the shoulder. Psst, he whispers. Frome leans in close to Wilkes's ear. What is it? This isn't looking good. They want to close us down. I know. Well, we, we can't close. I'll, I'll lose everything. Well, what do you expect us to do? I need you to figure something out. Miss Frome nods and, as if an idea suddenly appears in the air above her, cocks her head towards the ceiling and smiles, her lumpy pillow of a face wrinkling into something sinister. She breaks from the party and moves back towards Wilkes's office without a word. Once inside the kitchen, now empty of cooks and steam and plumes of flame, 
Wilkes, Oswald, and the inspectors gather around the main cooking range, a big, graded thing about the size of a ping-pong table, where Mr. Kennedy begins toying with all the knobs and instrumentation, absent-mindedly testing their functionality. Out of operation, without the constant hum and heat of its cooks, the kitchen seems tired and depleted, and smells vaguely of something burnt like a body that's just come inside after a long day in the sun. After clicking on the gas stove a few times and toying with the stainless steel hood over the range, Kennedy claps his hands together and then clasps them over his groin. Mr. Wilkes, Kennedy says, I am not exaggerating here when I say that I have seen parking garages with a higher level of tidiness than your kitchen. Every meal that is made in this place has a very good chance of poisoning your clientele. I mean, look at this. Kennedy reaches into the grating of the cooking range and pulls out a long, half-opaque, plasticky thing that looks kind of like a shedded snake's skin. What is this? Wilkes leans over the cooking range to get a better look at the object. Hmm, um, perhaps it's some congealed fat? Nothing to be concerned about. Maybe, Maybe some old seaweed. The object, whatever it is, immediately crumbles in Mr. Kennedy's fingers and rains back through the range's grates in a drizzle of plasticky crumbs. Mr. Kennedy shivers in disgust. Well, Kennedy says, even if it were only congealed fat, which I doubt it is, but even if it were, it shouldn't be allowed to stay here. Things need to be cleaned, Mr. Wilkes. That goes for you too, Mr. Oswald, as this is your kitchen. Oswald grumbles and folds his Popeye arms. Please, Lincoln pipes up from the back. Why don't you show us what was so immediately pressing? Oh, Kennedy nods. Yes, of course. This one infraction should have your entire buffet closed almost indefinitely. If you turn your attention to... Mr. Kennedy is cut short. His eyes widen and his mouth opens wide, but emits no sound, as if he's yawning. Mr. Kennedy? Wilkes asks. What's wrong? Something silver flashes out of his chest near his breast pocket. It's the curved tip of a steel blade, a steak knife. Like the head of a turtle, the tip of the blade slithers back within Kennedy's chest and blood spouts out of the wound, seeping through his shirt, velvety and thick. Kennedy coughs once and then sits on the floor, revealing the squat Miss Frome standing behind him with a steak knife in her hand. What? Wilkes mutters, staring at the dying health inspector on his kitchen floor. Blood is starting to spread on the tile. You, you just, you killed him, Wilkes says, in shock. Turning on his heels, making for the exit, Lincoln slips on his partner's blood and face plants against the kitchen floor, his nose crunching like a tortilla chip. He pulls his upper body off the bloody tile, but can't get his footing and slips again. He writhes on the ground like someone in a mud wrestling match, moaning in fright. Wilkes and Oswald watch as Frome steps towards Lincoln, blood-stained knife in hand, a terrible grin on her face. Bending over at the waist, Frome grabs Lincoln by his gray hair, pulls his head up, and runs her knife through his throat. The blade slices through his wrinkly neck flesh with a disturbing ease. Jets of blood spurt from Lincoln's neck in long, arcing confetti strings, which hit the walls of the kitchen and streak down them like sad tear stains. Seconds later, and the jets of blood lose their pressure and subside to a low, gurgling trickle, like a faucet that's been left slightly on. The two health inspectors lie dead on the floor. What did you do? Wilkes asks, his hands clutching the back of his cranium. What did you just do? I took care of things, Frome says, wiping her knife against a dish towel. What are you talking about? Wilkes asks. What, what are you talking about? Well, you asked me to figure something out, Frome says, calmly. You said they were going to shut us down. I meant, like, to, to distract them or, or something, not, not murder them. Well, don't say I murdered them, Frome says, a little offended. That sounds so awful when you put it that way. But, but you did murder them, Wilkes turns to Oswald. Oswald, help me out here. Oswald shrugs. Well, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it murder. What? What else would you call it? What, what would you call it? I took care of the problem, Frome says. 
how how is this taking care of the problem? This just created a bigger problem, a much a much bigger problem. I meant like maybe pay them off or or like blackmail them or something, not kill them with a butcher knife. What what are we gonna do? What are what are we gonna do? Frome tosses the knife in a big stainless steel kitchen sink as though it were just used to cut a cake and nothing more. Well, we'll have to get rid of the bodies, I guess. Oswald sucks his teeth. Yeah, hiding the bodies is the hard part. Wilkes's body kind of convulses for a second. Oswald! Don't you see what she just did? She just killed two people in cold blood. All you can worry about is hiding the bodies? Well, that and their vehicles, Oswald says, seriously. I guess we'll want to move those off location. Don't you get it? Wilkes screams. It doesn't matter if we move their bodies and their cars and yada yada. The last place they were seen, the last place their employer sent them to, was here, our restaurant. Do you understand that? Oswald walks around the cooking range to get a better look at the dead bodies. Lying in puddles of their own fluids, limbs twisted in all directions, the corpses look like squashed insects. Oswald clicks his tongue. Yeah, this will be hard to clean. Hmm, we need to think this through. Clean? That's what you're worried about? Am I going insane here? Miss Frome, sort of nudging Lincoln's body with the tip of her shoe and biting the inside of her cheek, runs her eyes frantically around the kitchen. She has something to say but doesn't know how to say it. Finally, she throws her hands in the air, signaling defeat. I thought you'd be happy about this, sir, she says to Wilkes, a measure of sorrow in her voice. I thought, since you were a devil worshipper and all that, that you'd think this was kind of par for the course, you know? What? What are you talking about? Why do you think I'm a devil worshipper? Well, because of the tarot cards and chicken bones and whatnot. You know, witchcraft. Wilkes takes offense to this last. He tenses his arms, balls his hands into fists. His forearms have that distinct muscularity only common amongst homeless people. They're just super lean and tight, like the hind legs of a starving cheetah. It's not witchcraft, Wilkes intones, rubbing his forehead. I just, I, okay, everyone shut up and let me figure this out. I'll, I'll figure this out. The big thing is the, is the bodies, Oswald says again, as if this were an important revelation. We just need to really get rid of the bodies. Wilkes looks down on the bloody ragdolls thinks of the hanged man card he pulled. Yeah, Oswald, obviously the bodies need to be dealt with, but, but... Oswald runs his palms over his hairy forearms as if he were warming himself. Maybe we could... What we could do is we could cut them up and put them in the buffet food. There'd be no trace whatsoever. Their remains would end up in the stomachs of the buffet patrons. Upon hearing this, Wilkes's head lists from side to side like a boxer's who's about to pass out. He stifles a dry heave. Lord in heaven, Oswald, what is the matter with you guys? No, no, we aren't feeding human flesh to our customers. This isn't Titus Andronicus. Well, then what would you suggest? Oswald asks. He's like sincerely P.O.'d that Wilkes didn't take his cannibalistic method seriously. He drives his fists into his sides, just above his hips. Okay, listen up. Here's what we're going to do. Oswald, take Kennedy's keys and his cell phone and anything else that might show his location. You're going to move his car. Move it somewhere pretty far away. Frome, you'll do the same with Lincoln. And make sure you guys wear gloves. Please, please remember to wear gloves. And don't drop their cars off in the woods or something. That's too suspicious. Drop them off at a location that will make the investigators question their character. Like Like a strip club or an adult video store or a sex toy shop or something. Stuff like that will immediately make the detectives think that they were up to no good, that maybe they had a part in their own disappearance. Don't destroy their cell phones or try to fiddle with them or anything. Just leave them in the cars and leave them on. And don't Uber home or anything. You are to walk back here. Leave your cell phones here too. Understand? Wilk straightens up now. He feels a kind of newly discovered confidence at how well he's commanding this situation. All right, now here's our story. The two health inspectors, Kennedy and Lincoln, came to do a surprise inspection last night. We obliged them. They seemed somewhat normal, but maybe a little fidgety, a little rushed, as if they had some place they needed to be, as if they were running out of time. They gave us a laundry list of health code violations and then left the restaurant around... 
Wilkes checks his watch. 10.30 p.m. They seem nervous. That's it. Understand? Frome and Oswald nod in unison. I understand, Oswald says, reaching towards Kennedy's body. Wait, wait, what are you doing? Oswald jumps and stands up at attention. I was, I was grabbing his car keys. Gloves, Wilkes says. Gloves, gloves, gloves. Oswald blanches and nods like a scolded child. But sir, Frome says, splaying her hands out towards the dead that lie before her, as if the question were implied just in her hand motion. What about the bodies? Leave that to me, Wilkes says, licking the corner of his mouth. The proprietor of the crematorium owes me a favor. The following morning, Wilkes gets to the buffet early. The Burbank sunlight is bright and young. He parks in the stall closest to the entrance and slips inside the doors with the typical dreariness of a business owner. His head hung, his eyes red and puckered. The buffet is dark and has that weird, damp smell that big, empty spaces always have, like a basement on a hot summer's day. The air is heavy. He skulks back to his office cubicle thing and promptly pulls out his tarot cards. Hopefully the readings are better today. It'd be hard to get much worse than yesterday's. He shuffles the cards in the quiet dark. Only a ghostly rectangle of light stretches across the buffet, glowing yellow and bold through the front doors and then falling off to a sliver of twilight near Wilkes's office. He pulls the Knight of Cups from the tarot stack. Not bad. It's a slightly ambiguous card, the Knight of Cups, but Wilkes decides it will mean something good. Reorganizing the stack, Wilkes places the cards neatly in the bottom drawer of his filing cabinet. These are heavy-duty cards, about a quarter-inch thick, and made of real maple, another souvenir from his trips to New Orleans. Wilkes rubs his eyes and sits behind his desk and frowns involuntarily. It's one of those heavy frowns that always precede a heavy cry, the kind that makes your chin wrinkle like a raisin. It was a long night. But before the waterworks can start, there's a knock on the entrance to the restaurant. Here, across the restaurant, the knock against the glass sounds thin and sad, like a stone hitting the bottom of a well. Wilkes stands and peeks over the top of his partition wall. Two silhouettes, stocky and heavy around the waist, stand at the front doors. Wilkes instantly knows who these silhouettes are. The police. Here we go, Wilkes whispers. Wilkes answers the door with courage and a little grace. Welcoming the officers inside his restaurant, he flips on the buffet's lights and they buzz and flash to an uncomfortable bluish luminance. The officers are like something from a TV show. Cropped haircuts, pushbroom mustaches, and necks thick as fire hydrants. One's a brunette, the other a blonde. They look like fraternal twins. How can I help you officers today? Wilkes asks. We're here on a missing persons case, the blonde officer says, looking past Wilkes into the restaurant's floor. Mind if we speak in your office? Uh, please, Wilkes says. Follow me. Wilkes leads them through the empty buffet. The tables and chairs have a kind of haunted quality. It's like they're stepping through a cemetery. The officers whisper, but it sounds unrelated to anything law enforcement-wise, like they're gossiping about the interior decorating or something. Sitting down in Wilkes's office, the police officer's eyes wander over every inch of the little cubicle. It's obvious that they're trying to be discreet about this, about their digestion of everything, but they aren't. Uh, so? Wilkes says, threading his fingers on his desk. A missing persons case. That sounds serious. How can I help? Yeah, the brunette says, stiffening in his seat. You had a couple of health inspectors come by last night, is that right? Oh, uh, yes, that's right. Why do you ask? Are, are they the persons that are missing? Wilkes smiles. He thinks he's clever. The blonde officer nods. Well, yes, actually. Uh, their workplace says they left to come do an inspection at this address. No one has seen them since. Wilkes furrows his brows. Well, that's, uh, that's very strange. Yeah, the blonde officer says. Strange. Strange, repeats the brunette officer, looking at a couple vases sitting behind Mr. Wilkes. So, tell us, how did the inspection go? Wilkes shakes his head. Well, officers, if I'm being honest, and I guess I should be as honest as humanly possible with you gentlemen, the inspection went poorly on my end. We incurred multiple health code violations. Nothing so serious as to shut us down, though, thank the Lord. 
The officers nod. Well, thank you for your honesty, the blonde officer says. Now, did you notice anything off last night? Anything at all? Did they mention that they were headed anywhere? You know, Wilkes says, nothing's really jumping out at me, but I guess... Hmm. What? What is it? The blonde asks, leaning towards Wilkes. His equipment makes a jingly sound. Well, Wilkes murmurs, pinching his chin. It's nothing but... But just a feeling, I guess. I got the idea that they were in a rush or something, like they had somewhere to be. Maybe they were just stressed from work, is all. The officers give each other a knowing, sideways glance, as if to say, We know what that behavior means, even if you don't. Hmm, the brunette says. That's interesting. You don't happen to have any video footage of them leaving last night, would you? Ah, unfortunately, this strip mall has no video monitoring. Peculiar, I know. Otherwise, I would be happy to oblige. The officers frown. Yes, yes, I know. It's like we're living in the dark ages. Well, the blonde officer says, nodding slowly. Is there anything else you can think of? Anything at all? Wilkes puts on an exaggerated frown and looks to the ceiling, exposing the whites of his eyes. They're strangled with branches of red blood vessels. He brings his eyes back down to the officers. I'm sorry, gentlemen, Wilkes says. I was just so caught up in trying to keep my restaurant running smoothly, I, I didn't have much time to pay attention to him. The officers accept this answer. They bob their heads in mutual understanding. This does seem logical. Okay, the brunette officer says, standing. We'll get out of your hair. You'll probably hear from us again. Well, thank you, gentlemen, Wilkes says, standing with them. Oh, by the way, the blonde officer says, pointing to something behind Wilkes. Those are some very pretty vases you got there. Are they like from, uh, from China or something? Wilkes turns and looks at what's caught the officer's attention. Two small burial urns, painted and gilded in a kind of archaic Chinese style, like something from the Han dynasty. There even seems to be some kind of decorative gold leaf interwoven with the patterning throughout. They're very beautiful. Oh, Wilkes says, solemnly. These aren't vases, I'm afraid. These are burial urns. Yes, they uh, hold the ashes of... of some old friends. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, sir, the blonde says. Thanks for your time. Wilkes nods and watches the two police officers leave his buffet, thinking of only one thing, how rowdy tonight's dinner rush will be. Thank you all for listening. That was The Chinese Buffet, written, edited, produced, and narrated by myself. I hope you all enjoyed it. Thanks again.